Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and illustrator Trevor Henderson. We often mythologize the creatures of movies from decades past, which have seared themselves into our brains. The xenomorphs of Alien, the predator of predators, the gremlins, etc. A well-designed and well-executed creature can make or break a story. Cam, I know you're a fan of the new James Wanian invention, Malignant, and regardless of how you feel about his filmmaking abilities, a modern master of monsters is Guillermo del Toro for fascinating creatures like the Pale Man. Our guest today is someone who knows a thing or two about creating the perfect creature, given that he's the designer of creepypasta favorite, Siren Head. Google at your peril. Trevor, can you walk us through, to you, what makes an effective creature? Oh, for sure. Um, Well, first of all, that's uh, an amazing company to be mentioned in. I loved Malignant so much. Uh, I was going to say, I think I probably watched Malignant because Trevor said to watch Malignant too. A literal (laughs) influencer of me when it comes to weird monsters. I think I told you before when I first met you is that um, you are a superhero to my small person whose siren head is like everything right now. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, there's uh, tons of kids that love my monsters and that's not anything I set out to do, but it's so weird and so cool. um, And that means a lot. But uh, as you were saying, I'm not an expert in any shape or form, but um, there's a few things I wrote down here on a little post note on my computer just to to, uh, things that I look out for when I'm trying to design a monster, I guess, for some spooky internet picture or something. And it's try and emphasize a distinctive silhouette because the silhouette's really important. um, And it'll also help you kind of differentiate it from a lot of other creatures where, you know, if you're looking at like the details, it might be easy to fall into a, like a very similar shape to everything else, which is like, you know, the, the elongated humanoid figure that's very um, popular or there's like, but that comes from Nosferatu. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like that's, I think about that and that like creepy right. thing coming down the stairs with like the elongated fingers. And that's all the origin of that visually from cinema. Yeah, yeah. totally. And um, you know, for a long time, I think we're getting out of it now, but for a long time after Cloverfield came out, every monster, every monster was a Cloverfield mm, yeah. with the big like <laughs> bat arms and the, the gray skin and whatnot. Um, I read a fascinating thing, which I can never find. And I always want to dig up again. That was about essentially like, it was like a, an anti-capitalist thing yeah. about the Cloverfield monster and a troll from Lord of the Rings. And I guess because special effects companies are so pressed for time and budget yeah. that they quite often are re- recycling assets. And they were saying that like capitalism is the reason we have so many Cloverfield. That totally makes <laughs> sense. And you can see like you can see the, the family tree going all the way down to like the thing from Stranger Things and like mm. um, the monsters in... Um, quiet place are just like oh yeah exactly smaller uh cloverfield guys um <laughs> so yeah I, I just try and look at silhouette um i try not to go too complicated you do like two two weird things on a monster and any anything over that and it gets it gets a little weird i think it gets a little too bogged down <laughs> you work from what scares you personally um mm-hmm. just try usually i'll just get a photo of like you know someone has sent me because that's where most of my photos come from. People on the internet send me them and I have a big folder on my desktop um, of their like darkened driveway or whatever. And I'll just try and think about what would be cool or scary to see there um, to fit that so, space. That's so eerie. How do you like walk alone? Do you have an animal you have to walk? Because this seems like it would be very daunting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just have a little cat. So she just chills next to me and I, I don't have to walk anyone on any dark alleys. Okay. <laughs> she's, always, she's always good. Yeah, so I just trying and think what would be there if I was going to put a monster there. How much does mechanics and actual like biological force mean to you? Like, I mean, you invented Siren Head, so there's like a human aspect to that. But like, yeah, how much does that kind of like this has to function in reality and the laws of physics apply? My literal next point is don't be afraid to play with surreal elements, give or take real world biology for effects. So um, Mm there is a point where it stops being it starts being detrimental to it being scary when you focus on how much it works in the real world. 
Um, mm. And it starts less being uh, something that's frightening and more like, um, you know, like uh, a drawing, like a nature doc, a nature drawing, uh, an anatomical drawing. Um, so I'm not afraid to make it just make no sense at all. But also you can play with elements of it making sense in something that doesn't make sense to make it scarier and vice versa. Um, and then the last thing I wrote was um, human elements, um, unexpected human elements in something that has no human elements is always really off-putting and, and spooky, I think. Um, and I just try and do that, I guess. And then I just try not to repeat what's come before. I, I do a lot of like fleshy, bo- fleshy boys, like too much. You guys are just like yeah. made of meat. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to move away from that a Clive little, little bit. Clive Barker would appreciate that. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. When you're looking at like, um, a whole, you and I were talking about horror icons and I talked about a bit about that in the intro uh, before we started the show. Is there something for you about coming up with a mythology that kind of needs to like continue on? Like we've talked about, um, you and I before the show started, we're talking about Pinhead and how many different ways people have used Pinhead and the way they've changed everything same with leather face it's always changing yeah um do you feel like mythology should be able to change along with a character if you've created a solid enough character yeah yeah absolutely um i feel like part of the 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 during during ability of characters like this that are kind of iconic is that they can be reinvented um and it doesn't really tarnish what's come before in my opinion like i'm not one of those people who is super angry about sequels or even remakes or anything like that. I don't know. I'm going to get pretty um, angry about one of the sequels of one of today's movies, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, yeah, that's true. That's fair. Um, but, you know, it's still there, right? You don't, uh, both of you and I can can choose not to watch. The that Descent. is correct. We can choose not to watch it, which I did. <laughs> so good yeah. Only watch the good ending, not the, the bad uh, forced mm. upon ending. And, um, <laughs> some people have good um, endings. Some people have endings thrust upon them. So, you know. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's kind of a compliment if a character can uh, withstand that and still maintain the interest level of an audience to go back and check out what some of it, what some new producer is doing for it or whatever. Um, in, is it always successful? Very often, not at all. Uh, but you know, it's cool that they can do that. I think it works. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, let's get into our first movie today. And we're going to be talking about some creatures because although the creatures in our first movie are well thought out and memorable, they're only part of what makes the film The Descent so effective. Uh, it's a movie that I would one day like to see in the theater completely in the dark with a killer sound system. But it's equally as effective in transporting you into a claustrophobic space while you're on a couch with a blanket and an animal on your lap. As we venture into this one, please be warned the movie deals with claustrophobia, gore, and betrayal as well as child death. We'll also probably spoil the heck out of it. And trust me, this is very spoilable. All right, who wants to take the plot summary on this one? I mean, I'd prefer this one to the next one. <laughs> totally. It's a, a little, a we'll little more straightforward. We'll leave that one for yeah. our expert, Trevor. All right, Cam, go ahead. You can <laughs> yes. take the easy one. <laughs> uh, number one, I love that you gave a trigger warning to betrayal. It's a thing. <laughs> There's, okay, are you familiar with this website, uh, doesdogdie.com? Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, let me tell you, I much like I professionally use mrskin.com, I also professionally use doesdogdie. <laughs> and that's, that's one of the triggers uh, that they give for this. And okay, I was like, okay, I can see huh? it because my mom actually doesn't like stuff where that that's a big thing for her she's like does this happen i'm like yep she's like i'm out so i just feel like yeah. betrayal and horror you, you kind of come in expecting <laughs> we've a all seen yellow jackets. Uh, anyway this, <laughs> yeah yes. it's a big part this of this movie, one though uh, yeah it's true this yeah. is a very if you like yellow jackets and haven't seen the, the descent yeah. get on it yeah um the Descent is is kind of a, a bunch of movies in one, and as you say, I think even it's hard to even do it, give a plot summary without spoiling stuff. So if you've never seen it, just know it's a great horror movie. Everybody agrees. <laughs> Watch it. Uh, pause right now. Uh, but yeah, The Descent is uh, about uh, character Sarah. Uh, she's a part of a group of women who like to do kind of extreme sports. Um, at the end of one of their vacations. Uh, in the middle of some light drama, uh, in an accident, her husband and child are killed. Uh, it, it obviously sends her on a bit of a spiral. And the film picks up when she is returning for the first time with this group of friends uh, to go uh, spelunking in some caves. <laughs> uh, but one thing leads to another. They end up in a, a cave that is not the cave they're supposed to do. They don't want to do the baby cave. So they go to a more extreme off the map cave. Uh, things start to go wrong in the cave, and then that compounds uh, eventually to a level where things uh, are full of monsters, and and they're they're fighting to survive, and then eventually fighting each other, and fighting each other. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you say betrayal, the interesting thing is they actually set up the human conflict almost immediately. Yeah. Uh, so you you have that in your head the whole time. 
Yeah. Uh, this is a, a companion piece, I would say, to um, Neil Marshall, who is the director and, and co-writer's first film, Dog Soldiers, mm-hmm. which is, if you've seen that one, sure. that one's also a lot of fun. Uh, Dog Soldiers is a run-up for this one. If you've seen that one, it very, very much feels close, except for that's a band of all-male soldiers and one female zoologist. Uh, or Yeah, she's a zoologist. She's not even a cryptozoologist. Uh, fighting, no, yeah. <laughs> trapped in a, in a farmhouse, fighting all these werewolves that are coming in to get them, except for they're not in a tiny cave. They're in a giant woods in a tiny farmhouse so it's uh it's and it's got the same amount of gore but like humor in the gore like at one point a dog is like eating someone's Mm. intestines and they're like bad dog like it's silly you know (laughs) fun and weird this one kind of it has moments of humor but then it just completely eradicates it it's like a movie that gets rid of all humanity on the back end Mm, sure yeah, yeah. yeah, and you, you you can see that's the thing he's interested in. Like, uh, it's very interesting when you read interviews. You can't come at him with any question about this movie he has not thought <laughs> of. And I love when somebody's like, yeah, "This reminds me of like the ancient text of going to the underworld." He's like, "Yes." <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, it is. Like, you look at his list of influences. So, from Deliverance, The Thing, The Shining, The Texas mm-hmm. Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I mean, you can see all this. Uh, like, were there any particular moments where you got smarty pants about this, Trevor? Where you're like, "Oh, I know what he's doing." I know where that's from. Um, not really. The one that stuck out last time I watched as like in a direct reference was the um, moment when the main character whose name slips my mind rises out of the pool of blood yep. and kind of like yeah. an apocalypse now kind of moment. Um, but the rest of it is definitely there when you bring it up in terms of influences. Not so much like direct rips or anything, though. Um, yeah, I think it, it does a really good job kind of pureeing all those influences into one thing. I think, uh, and then of course you bring up Deliverance and I'm like, oh, because I saw it as Carrie. Like here's the blonde woman covered in blood coming up with the big blue eyes and she's about to wreak vengeance, right? So it's interesting that like as, it feels like a horror movie lover's horror movie. Do you know what I mean? Totally, like, there's yeah. But it's also something of its own, as you mentioned, where you're like, if you're really thinking about it and you're like, oh, this is resonant of blank, but he's tapping into such primal fears that I think all mm-hmm. of those movies, which are amazing, also are tapping into that you're going to have that sort of resonance, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that he went on I and did a movie called Doomsday that is like, mm-hmm. if you watch that one, he's not at all telling, he's not hiding in any way, shape or form like he is kind of in the descent, yeah. his influences. Like half that movie is The Road Warrior, half that movie is, you know, Camelot. There's a bunch of, it's yeah. just mixed all together. Um, but The Descent, I feel like he's definitely like a little finer mixing is happening there. It's kind of weird. I, I like I, I get I get what you're saying. Neil Marshall is an interesting director because The Descent almost seems separate from all the rest of his movies. Yeah. You can kind of see the through line because he is sort of a tongue in cheek. Um, though now he's also become the like medieval guy, which yeah. is interesting. Interesting. He, yeah. he started doing Game of Thrones and now he's just like everything's medieval all the time. Yeah. It, um, it almost feels like the first half of The Descent is him like restraining himself and like really trying to do mm-hmm. something um subtler and then he just fully like you know he lets his belt loose and does like <laughs> his his trademark what became his trademark a horror action gore thing there's with, a you know, lot Dyson. of eye gouging in this movie there's a lot of eye gouging <laughs> yeah. um I, I will say i forgot considering it's like a film that famously has these scenes of people in a giant pool of blood i still was kind of sh- shocked i'd forgotten how gory it was it's so gory um but i i do feel like the first half when he's restraining himself is almost unbelievably scary like it's so it's the one long breath you're holding for an hour straight um and then you know i was talking to friends and they were like you know it's almost like as soon as the monsters show up i can i can breathe because it's something they can (laughs) tangibly fight and make a difference against whereas before they're just like completely trapped in this uncaring environment that is just doesn't care what they live or die and there's nothing they can do to fight against it. I think what's interesting to me and is so effective in this movie is this idea of momentum. Like you talked about mm-hmm. restraint and they are literally trapped in this cave and like especially the sequence with the squeeze which I wasn't claustrophobic and then I did a oh boy. Movie, so maybe, but that, <laughs> yeah, that squeeze yeah. scene is so uncomfortable um, and the yeah. way he shoots it so uncomfortable and that whole bit in the first half just feels so like restrained and then when the creature shows up behind her, spoiler alert, in the, uh, the fantastic very two 2000s shot with the like uh, infrared camera that's when like they're like okay and go the rubber band releases and you just you know fly from there and even um, absolutely and even in both endings the franticness of her of sarah's escape and the release um you're like okay you are that's the end of the rubber band that's really cool that's the tail end kind of flapping in the breeze yeah and i totally like you know like it's easy to say like oh i wish the rubber band never snapped because that Mm -hmm. tension is so good 
but uh, in terms of it being like a fully fleshed out film and it like being satisfying to an audience, maybe that would be unsustainable. And you kind of need that action towards the end, maybe. That's the component, I think, of the next movie we're going to be talking about, because uh, we'll get into it. The, the reason why a lot of people do not like our second film is because they find it's too mm-hmm. much of that rubber band. That they, they don't they mm-hmm. don't sure, get enough sure. of this release snap at the end, although I will argue that really, really snap hurts. However, <laughs> um, <Yeah. but> th- <laughs> this one is um, the other thing that I think is really interesting is when people talk about this movie, they don't talk about it. It's a band of women. They're just like, it's just these people yeah. trying to survive. And that's so rare in horror. Um, and there mm-hmm. are some people who, uh, of course, when it first came out, were like, you've hypersexualized them. I don't think that happens here at all. And they deliberately yeah. oh. went out to make sure that didn't happen. There's no weird sex yeah. scenes. They never like cut to the affair. They like there's there. The women are like oh. appropriately dressed for what they're doing. Like it's it's <laughs> really interesting to me that that was thought about. That's a wild uh, complaint. I've never heard that because it, it seems like he there'd be a lot of ways he could have gone in that direction if he wanted to. And he just absolutely does not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like he fought, to hear him talk, he fought against that quite a bit, too, with his, his producers, which is interesting. And, like, yeah, like you say, it's very interesting because, and tell me if, if you disagree as a woman, Becky, but I, I feel like this is also a pretty good, like, group of women movie. Because uh, I think a full group of women horror is still pretty yeah. rare. Yeah, uh, It's often, like, a sorority house <laughs> or, or something like that. So it's not often adult women with adult women conflicts. And I think you really get the feeling, and actually, Neil Marshall is somebody who I think quite often has women leads, mm. but uh, he he really cared about not screwing that up, which I think is quite interesting. He, too. Very and early on, before people were telling well. them to do it, he took it to a bunch of his female friends who he respected and said, can you read this? What did I get wrong? Right. Mm. He really yeah. got that influence, knowing like I have a point of view that is specific to my personal experience. Perhaps I need some insight on yeah. what this would look like from somebody else. Um, and I think yeah. that makes this movie so, so much stronger as a uh, as a as a piece, and also that the, these characters are so believable, and you don't, and you have like kind of a distinct personality without how, having to be like, oh, she's the sexy one, she's the quirky one, she's the partier. Yeah. You get a bit of the partier, yeah. but you're like, no, that's just kind of you know, she's that chick. You don't ever get like, here's the archetypes that you are now to connect with, identify yeah. with one, and hope for their survival. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. They definitely come across as people, and it's kind of shocking how rare you can get an ensemble of women in a film. Um, and even this to this day and not have it fall into these weird tropes and uh, yeah. weird patterns. But I also yeah. think that's why yeah. the betrayal aspect is so often talked about and why it shows up on the trigger warning here is because these women have to trust each other for the kind of activities mm. they do. And especially for this and the fact that the betrayal was so deep on a personal level by one of them just makes everything even worse. And that when everyone's like, Oh no, she left us to die. Now you have to take her down is like it just yeah. Yeah, with watching the unraveling, like the rubber band is just so it becomes satisfying, yeah. you know? Yeah. And especially even just like uh, when they find out that uh, it wasn't, they were, they were lied to basically and told they were going to a really easy uh, yeah. baby cave. And it's like this un unmapped monster cave yeah. um, from prehistory or whatever. Uh, <laughs> That alone is just the the biggest end all be all betrayal for me because it's doomed them all. Yeah, it, it's it's also interesting though because I do think he he doesn't quite make as villainous as well, Juno is. She's not quite like mustache twirling. Oh no no. Like, yeah, and and for instance, the way that she leaves the one woman to die, like it was a mistake. And what is she gonna do? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, it, it's you can kind of you and and they they make her the point of view character for that sequence too. So it's like. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that they still, they leave you, you're, I think, I mean, you're purposefully kind of meant to be like, is Sarah good or bad or yeah, what's her deal? It's definitely not cut and dry. It's very gray, no. especially in the, the betrayal, the betrayal, as it were, of, you know, accidentally, she accidentally kills her friend in the middle of fighting cave mm-hmm. monsters. Yeah. And then she falls, I think she falls down a ravine or something. And then she just assumes she's died. And that's, re- yeah, it's ridiculous to of call that a betrayal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, you would assume your friend died when you put a pickaxe through the threat. <laughs> yeah. I would. Also, that having said, there's that. no way in hell you're getting out of that cave. Like the worst she could have done was put no, you out no. of your misery at that point. With yeah, that's true. Maybe she should have. She should have killed yeah. her. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's an interesting time when I was kind of like, because I'm trying to think like, what's the 2005 like horror vibe? And the interesting thing is, it's it's right before Hostel comes out yeah. this year, but it's it's at a weird time where the 
the kind of J-horror remake boom was fizzling out. Yeah. But there was this British thing with 28 Days mm-hmm. Later and Dog Soldiers and Shaun of the Dead. Right. Where, and I think European as well, because I think you can put some of the French extremity in there too. Definitely. Where it was this like person-based, you know, like human drama plus extreme <laughs> gore situation yeah. was kind of, and that was kind of the two streams of horror. I think that yeah. might be my kind of horror. I think that might might, <laughs> might be why and, and like that kind of quiet, like contemplative and then everything goes to hell is kind mm. of my thing, which also we're going to be talking about in the second movie. But uh, uh, okay, let's get back into the idea of we love the first half, but the second half, the monsters, you're not totally sold, Trevor. Let's talk about that. I think that it's a super effective claustrophobic cave movie and a super effective monster mash kind of like gore fest and then they don't go to they're kind of bolted together and they go together as well as you'd think but it's hard not to go into one or the other and then wish there was more of one or the other like they're two different films and also like the monsters are cool in design but i i it's hard not to watch them now and think they look like buffy villains yeah oh yeah bit. with like the, yes. sl- the smooth face with the, the nose yeah. and angry the, brow yeah. and the yeah um but you know it, it's a testament to the the performers and the suits that they're so scary because i think the design is very um you know like i don't want it to be too complicated but it's a little simple and very mm-hmm. much like you know some prosthetics on a dude's forehead a little bit um, I am grateful they didn't go the CGI route, though. I was literally just thinking that, oh, like, it would have been true, so yes. easy to do something that was just completely removed from <laughs> any kind of, um, any kind of, you know, weight. Yeah, if it was between the two, I definitely, will, I'm very happy with the route they went. Uh, for sure. It makes it stand up more. So yeah. Paul Hyatt, who designed these creatures, also designed the attack the block creatures, which makes all oh, the yeah. sense mm-hmm. in the world. Because uh, again, like you, you yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, did you see that? There's an interesting thing where I think these creatures kind of led to that, where originally these guys were phosphorescent. Oh, really? But they found that it just, it made it less scary. Yeah. Because they actually wanted them to be not visible. Yeah. Like, they needed them to be a little more in shadow. I think it didn't work when they glowed. That makes sense to me, yeah. Um, Which the Attack the Block guys glow. Yeah. If you haven't seen Attack the Block, yes. I guess I should say to our listeners. Attack the Block. I just assume. Those aliens are incredible. And like mm. nine out of 10 people you ask will be like, oh, that's CG, right? And it's not at all. It's 100% uh, guys in big suits with um, some wow. CGI overlay to make the black like super Vanta black. Oh, okay, and, I was going to uh, say. And when you talk yeah, about the reveal uh, of them in the like um, the incandescent sort of uh, the infrared cameras, I always think of oh, yeah, yeah, as kind of creating that sort of visual. Oh, sure. They don't. Wreck is 2007. I think it's just that they use it yeah. so well that that's kind of like the definitive, oh yeah, they did it first. That's kind of like the, the best way to use that infrared camera. Um, but I think here you're kind of starting to see that now becoming like the trope of how, how people are going to be showing things in the dark. And it makes things spookier right mm. i mean paranormal activity yeah, totally. was going to use that forever afterwards yeah. yeah um that jump scare or not even a jump scare it's the, the scare i guess where at first for spoilers but you know where she they're panning across the cave and you see the the crawlers for the first time just standing behind her in the night vision um is i think one of like the two big for me like movie jump scares of all time it's real mm. good that one is great because it's still it's very still the camera's in motion but the figures are still it's just because something's different that you get scared and my other favorite one is in exorcist 3 oh yeah um, yeah sure and that is a very like in motion like someone enters the frame violently in motion so mm. it's kind of like the two ends of the same or two sides of the same coin for like all time or horror movie jump scares you're talking <laughs> about the cadet like the rib cracker as the guy like goes back like it's the long shot oh yeah, I yeah, love that yeah. shot so much that and the woman crawling the long on the hallway ceiling. with a nurse oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So yeah. oh god I love Exorcist yeah. 3 more people it's need to see so Exorcist good. 3 it's amazing <laughs> it's, I think I think it's it's finally gotten its due it's getting there yeah, yeah. yeah. it's better than the first uh, one yeah. <laughs> it is oh, it is I'm gonna have we're, we're watching um, The Exorcist 3 for the upcoming, or The Exorcist 1 for the upcoming series. So I will watch that and then I will watch 3 right yeah. after it and I will get back to you, Trevor, <laughs> on my personal yeah. feelings. I swear it's better. I'll die on that hill. It's a better, <laughs> it's a better film. It does have Brad Dorff and I will watch anything with Brad sure. Dorff. So there's that. Yeah, sure, sure. I was going to say one thing that I like about this that is kind of interesting is it's a movie that I think has a lot of the good bits of like a low budget film yeah um where it's you know relying on characters blah 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 blah, and very caring about tension but then you also when you get into the meat and potatoes of how this was made this is a fancy yeah. movie like the, the the fact that the caves do not exist they were created yeah. by a production designer the lighting is obviously nuts i'm actually yeah. shocked it's just a journeyman dp sam mccurdy it's like 
it's kind of wild because it's like this. Yeah, this movie is very fantastic lighting and set design. Because you can, you're right, Cam. I was thinking about this because like you can see everything, but you feel like you shouldn't be able to see everything. Like that's they've lit it just mm. enough that it doesn't feel like there's an external light source. It's really clever. Oh, totally. It's a fine line to walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy. So that that kind of struck me. Where you know you you're kind of like ah yes, this scrappy guy, and you're like wait a minute, this isn't scrappy. This is very <laughs> well planned. Uh, yeah. Uh, my favorite piece of trivia is that for the audition sequences for these women, they built them a little like human habit trail tunnel of like tables and chairs, and they made them do the squeeze mm. scene in that as they like all went through it together. And I'm like. I, yeah. as an actor, I can't imagine walking into that room and being like, here is your tunnel. Please get into the tunnel because that's what you'll be doing for 90% of the movie. Enjoy. You know? Oh, that yeah. would be the scene, though. That's like, that's kind of the scene in the whole movie, I think. Yeah. Um, and to pull it off, like, to have that as the audition, that makes total sense to me. You have to get, like, the camaraderie right away with the with the characters and also like the tension of the cave that makes perfect sense and that movie sets up or that moment sets up so many things that's when they lose the rope bag that was save them later on Mm. that's where they get trapped in it that's where like you realize okay is juno actually on their side is she actually trying to do the best for them like there's so much that's set up in that one segment that's really fascinating yeah Oh, yeah, absolutely. One thing I just wanted to mention as well is just, again, to be, like, contextualizing it in the era. I find it very fascinating that the the reason why the film is kind of a cult film is because its UK release was disrupted by the bombings oh, yeah. in London. Oh, wow. And, and part of the problem was it's actually kind of like a multifold problem. Number one, their marketing was actually focused deeply on the London underground, Ooh. which, of course, people weren't taking. And then also it was kind of in poor taste. And number two, it was there's literally a poster for the descent on the bus that exploded. Oh. Uh, so <sighs> they were like, like he said, like the the actress was like traumatized that she's like on the bus that was bombed, uh, and so they had to. Apparently, they did a fairly effective turnaround where they like made a new poster where the women are kind of like defiantly fighting, and they're like that kind of suited the mood. But it's interesting because yeah, I think it really took like an international release for the film to slowly gain because London was just not ready for people trapped underground uh, terror disaster, yeah, yeah. which is. Yeah, and, fascinating. It's just interesting when something like that is what disrupts it, and it's like there's nothing you can do. No, yeah. and I mean, when we get into 2001, I'm sure we'll talk a whole lot about all of the uh, the things that were kind of disrupted sure. there of all the di- disrupted um, releases and alterations of endings. Speaking of alterations of endings, let's uh, oh, get yeah. into the two different versions of uh, of this one, because there's a U.S. and a U.K. version. That. Trevor, do you want to kind of walk <laughs> us through the differences? Uh, yeah, so the the UK, the much preferred original ending, has Sarah um, uh, is the lone survivor uh, for many reasons. Uh, finds falls down a little uh, crevasse, another crevasse, and then <laughs> finds this giant pile of of horrible roadkill and bones and skulls that she scrambles up towards daylight and emerges through this uh, you know little bush of branches that's been hidden. It's where the monsters are crawling out to to kill like deer and and wolves and drag them back she runs back into the to her car she gets in her car she's hysterical as you would expect there's a big setup in this uh, scene that you think oh she's gonna get you know she's gonna get in a car accident like the first scene and then that'll be like the ironic like night living dead style death where she made it out but she gets killed at the end um and they do a fake out with the car going by her while she's in the car parked by the side of the road but she doesn't get hit by a car and then she looks to her right and her dead friend is sitting there and it's a big jump scare and that's where the American version ends and it goes right to credits. So your idea is that she has escaped, but is horribly traumatized in a kind of a Sally Hardesty, Texas Chainsaw Massacre way. Mm-hmm. And that's where they built on it for the sequel, which is dog shit. Um, but the American <laughs> one after that, or the, sorry, the European one, the original ending um, has a, a short scene after the jump scare with the with their dead friend in the car where it snaps back and she's still in the cave. She's never gotten out of the cave and she's sitting in this, little compartment with a with a torch in front of her and um throughout the film we've been seeing these little snippets of um her dead daughter with a birthday cake um and then we finally in this last scene her daughter is there across from her with this cake and she's like smiling 
beatifically at her. And then the camera kind of does this really fun movement where it pulls out and then kind of zooms around so that the cake is not in frame. And then when it goes back around, it's just her alone with a torch in this compartment and it zooms out and she's smaller and smaller and uh, you hear monster sounds getting closer and it's just the bleakest possible ending you could get. Um, But that does not suit their idea to have like an aliens-esque military squad go in and machine gun all the (laughs) monsters in the sequel. So they had to do, they had to cut it. Um, and maybe it was just too bleak for the time. I don't know. Though we were about to enter like hostile territory. Oh, yeah. hostile. Literally, literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm interested. I feel like in retrospect, like a hostile territory was a lot smaller than it loomed in my mind. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. Well, we're literally going to be talking about Wolf Creek for our last episode of this podcast. So oh, I, lo- I love I love bleak movies, but there's moments in Wolf Creek that are too, yeah. too fucking bleak for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Well, wow. speaking, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to be talking about another yeah. bleak movie coming up and how much we love them. Um, this one I think is interesting because, as you mentioned, they changed the American ending so they could have the sequel. And Neil Marshall was like ah, uh, guys, you really shouldn't do a sequel. And they were like, but we're going to make a bunch of money. So that's what we're going to do. And we own the property because as mm-hmm. a low-budget filmmaker, you basically sold your rights to us. This is Lionsgate, yeah. who was doing a bunch of this stuff until they got the Hunger Games rights. And then it was all, you know, everybody's... It was a literal Hunger Games of film at that point. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so they were like, okay, well, then we're going to do this without you. And he's like, well, can you at least run the script by me and I'll kind of give you some notes. And they were like, mm-hmm. here you go. And he went, this is not good. And they were like, too bad. This is what we're making. And I started watching because I was like, okay, I should probably, you know, kind of figure out what this is. I watched like 15 minutes of it and was like... Uh, this is going to ruin my enjoyment of the first film, and so yeah. I turn it off. But it's it's uh, I mean, yeah, it's what what Trevor I, says. It's like a military yeah. force oh, going yeah. in, and they force her, even though she's clearly traumatized, to go back yeah. with them. Like, they take her out of the hospital to go back. Because she as did if you it. would even do that with a criminal to be like, "We're going back to this cave." Yeah. You would ask them where the cave is and just go yourself. Yeah, mm-hmm. just yeah, it's it's pointed it from afar. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and also there's it's an fast. old crazy man, a la Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre, oh, who's yes. feeding the creatures, and yeah. Yes. Oh my uh, god. Yep. It's it's interesting to me though that as much as he now is 100% like don't watch the sequel which I enjoy in interviews he's like yeah it's terrible like you Trevor he, yeah. he agrees uh, I do like that he kind of is like I don't mind the North American ending oh interesting because he does say it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre he says he says he finds that he's like that's not a hopeful ending no <laughs> it's like that woman has lost her mind <laughs> she she is barely surviving and he's and he's kind of like um, it's interesting he he says he finds the happier ending the one where she's consumed by beasts because she's with her daughter in her mind. That is an interesting point, yeah. That also wow. tells you of what kind of a filmmaker he is. He's like, that's <laughs> yeah. the happy ending, kids. Yeah, yeah. The win is she's lost her mind so much her daughter's there rather than, and I think he's also like, she's not out in the world. She doesn't have to deal with the world anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think the title, The Descent, is quite possibly the greatest title because there's three <laughs> completely different meanings in it. So there's the descent of going into the cave. There's the descent that these creatures are descended from humanity. They're just an offshoot of what we are. And then there's the descent of her descent into madness, right? So however you want to look at it, you're like, that is such a perfect title. It's so good. Wow. Oh, that's great. I never, yeah, I only only got the first one. (laughs) 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 Let's get into something completely supernatural that has no grounding in reality. We're going to move on to our next movie, which we forced Cam to watch uh, because he has heard me. No, I liked it. I'm glad because I have yelled about how much I love this movie sure. for so long. Trevor, you love this movie as well, although we're going to get into other works of this sorely, yeah. sorely neglected filmmaker that uh, we we perhaps think should be seen equally as much, if not more. That's oh, yeah. Neroy coming up after the break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Japanese horror is known for many things. But for me, what they do so well is imagery and atmosphere. A perfect example of this would be the video from The Ring. A whole lot of spooky imagery followed by Sudoku climbing out of the well. We love us some Gore Verbinski on the podcast, and even he knew better than to mess with that sequence and just reshot it with white people when it came time for the U.S. remake. A number of Japanese horror movies made the jump to North America on the success of The Ring, either getting dubs and subs releases like Audition or full-blown remakes like The Grudge. As you may expect, some of the best examples of the genre didn't make the jump and needed to be sought after throughout various web forums. Neroi, The Curse, is one such movie. It's one of my favorites, and Trevor, I know it's one of yours as well. It's mm-hmm. also an early film by prolific horror director Koji Shirashi. This one is more spooky than violent, but content warnings for violence, the supernatural, and child endangerment and death, as well as spoilage potential, applies. Okay, Trevor, do you want to try and give us a plot summary on this one? I mean, it's not too bad. Yeah, it's a fairly simple story when it's all laid out, but I almost, I don't want to reveal that. But it, it, it involves a paranormal investigator who, um, you know, makes a, uh, you know, kind of records his, his investigating into various hauntings and cursed locations and cursed shrines around Japan, um, which is a very prevalent thing uh, that you can get tons of those exact types of videos uh in japan and it totally plays into the realism of this Mm. and on his latest investigation into a a horrible curse uh he goes missing and his house burns down with his wife inside and uh a couple days later i think it's like three months later um the company that employed him gets a mysterious box from him uh with a camcorder inside and a tape um, so what you're watching is everything he recorded basically into this investigation, all these different pieces put together um, into what he's assembled in a very like, you know, uh, red string on a corkboard kind of manner, mm-hmm. um, capped by what was in that on that tape that was sent to him, uh, sent to the, his company after he disappeared. So the genius of this film is that um, whereas most found footage narratives are generally like one extremely scared person with a camera running and kind of recording as they go it's more of like a roller coaster experience this uses the context of he that he was an investigator he had access to all these different sources like news reports game show clips you know all kinds of stuff using different like ways of different formats of doing it and he'd assembled it before he even went missing so you have the context of being able to go through this whole movie and see all these different pieces fit together to tell the story and then you get to the really really scary bit at the very end which we'll talk about but it, yeah, that, that's kind of the gist of it. It's very sprawling. Um, when it's discussed in social circles, it is of people who like found footage. It's discussed as quite possibly the best found footage movie. Absolutely, it is. It's definitely, there's few that do or even attempt to do what it's specifically trying to do with how ambitious um, mm. it is in terms of the story and putting it together. Um, over any other found footage film. And it's really, really, really scary. It's very good. <laughs> uh, although I, I have to, with the caveat, I love this movie so much. I have made so many people sit down and watch it with me. And yeah. having done that, I have also come to the realization that like, if really, really slow builds are not for mm. you, this yeah. is not going to be your movie. Like, And you really have to pay attention to like all of the, and especially because there's subtitles. If you are even slightly inebriated, perhaps this is not the film for you. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, like, it's really like, here 
here are the dots. Red string was a great way to describe it, Trevor. So yeah, um, yeah if you like that kind of stuff, this is going to be like your your Christmas, your Easter, yeah. and a really sunny Tuesday all in one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's all about the implication of various like you know keywords popping up in different places, and you drawing that own mental connection of what's happening, you know, back and forth. Um, it doesn't spell out a ton of stuff for you. So mm-hmm. yeah, you'd have to you'd have to quite pay attention, I think. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, a good. Uh, I I tried to dig up as many like English language interviews with him as I could, which there aren't a ton. He won't talk about it. There, he says it's no. Yeah, yeah he says it. Uh, he he refuses to talk about it. Like it's a real thing. It's incredible. It's it's very fascinating. So yeah, I found one where he talks about grotesque, his his movie that got banned a lot. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, I haven't watched it. Don't. But, uh, I, I made it fifteen minutes yeah. in. We're not we're not talking. Listen, about he. It. I I think even he is like uh, you know. Well, that's what <laughs> he, he, got, uh, he got. As I was, we were talking to Trevor earlier that he got yeah. hired to do that. He got hired to make oh, yeah. the most unwatchable, brutal yes, film. Exactly. And that's what he that's says. What he's he like, did. he's like, they uh, they told me to make a movie that would get banned. It got banned. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, the the thing that interested me when you're talking about like the the vibe of it and how it might not be for everybody, they were like, what? Who are your influences? And the interesting thing is, he says, you know, the ones you would expect: uh, Brian De Palma, Sam Raimi, John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. But then he says, uh, the master of slow burn drama, Abbas Kiarostami, which I'm like, oh damn, like that is kind of like it's kind of like you made a weird horror movie that Abbas Kiarostami would make, yeah. where it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's about repetition and the weird, like you slowly coming to realize the interconnectedness. And my understanding, you guys are both bigger fans of his directing work. Like quite a lot of his films are kind of interconnected. Oh yeah, conceptually. he's got a whole cinematic, like Marvel style cinematic universe. Trevor, <laughs> no, do you want to get into literally. that? It's, he was telling me about wow. stuff I hadn't even heard of. It's, it gets intense. Yeah. Um, so I, he, like I was mentioning before, he is, his films are kind of uh, split down the middle where you get films like Grotesque and other mm-hmm. stuff that I don't really pay attention to. It feels there's like one were, that involves sure. serious assault and it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really so, not yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 So but, there's but all very this, much down the middle. But all the spooky stuff is great. And yeah, it, the, one of the big joys of his films for me is, is seeing those connections that pop up, um, that you know we're completely unnecessary but draw it into a greater like cost lo-fi cosmic horror hellscape universe kind of thing um yeah like you know in nora the curse he talks about mr oh god i forget the character's name hori mr hori thank you i was gonna say mr norai but that's not it yeah (laughs) talks about ectoplasmic worms eating everybody yeah and He's got other movies where you see those worms. He's uh, <laughs> Mr. Horry's wow. absolutely correct. Um, in a cult, the main antagonist is those are those worms, and they appear wow. to ca- the main character in, in yeah, several. Yeah, they're visions. called the Leech Child. It's really yeah. something. Oh, yeah. interesting. The the one the thing that fascinates me mo- the most, and is like you know my my own sickness interested is apparently he has somewhere in his filmography an erotic film that is technically in this universe to, to which i'm like oh lord okay. yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah he's made like a like a potentially a pornographic film but in set in the worm universe that, which that tracks. fascinates um, me but he's got uh, he's got noroi occult and cult that all deal with mm. the ectoplasmic worms in various ways he's got a movie called a record of sweet murder um mm. which is actually a movie that t- it leans much more towards the grotesque um, okay. side of his filmmaking canon um, but the lore behind it ties deeply into the the worms where basically this character it holds a film crew or a news crew hostage um, and he's a serial killer who's been told mm. by these worms in a vision that if he kills like 37 people or something like that um, this person he loves will come back to life and then everyone he killed mm. will not have been killed and it's um, all shot single shot real time like it's yeah, wow. it, real intense again yeah. that sounds like an obscure <laughs> yeah. like it's yeah. uh that, that's that's very cool so, and, and i mean yeah. the thing to say is as much as this movie does have like when we're talking about his more extreme stuff this movie isn't super violent no 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 it's it, and it's it's also i think a very steady hand it is not like a gonzo no uh, and, and that's movie part, i mean it's weird cuz like we we talked about the last one of like not seeming like a low budget this one is also a low budget and you can kind of see where it is but it doesn't ever feel like a low budget mm-hmm. um i think yeah. especially because of the the effectiveness of the effects but you talk about this mm-hmm. not being violent and i think about spoiler for the end please go watch this movie it's so good um yeah. where he is literally hitting a child over the head with a rock sure. repeatedly yeah. and yeah. that's yeah. like uh, like the horror of that moment of what he is doing if you don't believe the child is actually possessed is yeah. Yeah. like a nightmarish right 
the good thing is that that chat is literally a physical manifestation of like <laughs> of a, of a an eldritch horror. <laughs> oh, yeah, not even exactly. a demon, just like the yeah. worst. Yeah. We know. Oh, the worst. Yeah. The little glimpse, and the I, glimpses you get in this are so good because mm, it's like, yeah, we don't that's have what the budget. It it's all about corner of your the eye one shot and like where, a, a weird yeah, edit. Yeah. The one yeah. shot where Mr. Hori's like, it looks like the rocks have deformed his face from mm. smashing his face into the actual shape of the mask is so good. Yeah. Yeah. I could talk for an hour just about Koji Shirashi's uh, the way he works with effects yeah. and how mm-hmm. it's tied into the way that David Lynch works with special effects, sure. especially in the new Twin Peaks season, where it's, I feel like it's less budgetary limitations because there are more effective ways, even on a budget, than he works mm-hmm. with to portray some of the stuff he does. But I feel like he is really embraced. I mean, I could be talking out of my ass, honestly, but it feels to me like he is using um, kind of like abstract forms of CGI, like very low five forms mm-hmm. of CGI to kind of portray and get across the otherness of like, what would it look like to m- encounter an actual cosmic horror that is not supposed to be in our reality? Uh, like the way that, how strange it feels. But once you get past, it's just like, oh, it's it's bad CGI. Um, the intent there feels really purposeful to me. Just to go back to our own podcast, to tie in, we talked about Wreck last season. Oh, yeah. A few years later. And, and that's kind of the start of what would be the North American and European boom in, in found footage. And the interesting thing is I think he's inventing a lot of stuff that is just getting now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is like using digital technology glitches. But it's interesting because we looked up a lot of what made, like what made the found footage boom in the late 2000s was digital cameras were available so suddenly it became cheap of course the thing is i think at this time it's pretty much just in japan yeah so like he is inventing and 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 especially the glitch scares i think like he's inventing that stuff for almost certainly yeah because it's years before it would be used in north america or or europe the um for watching i I watched both these movies last night just for a refresher before this but one of the big like the scariest moment besides like the really big money shots towards the end of noroi um, on last watch for me was the moment when they're first interviewing Mr. Hori and the camera glitches out and you see the wall of masks, like those blue uh, Kagutaba masks. And then he plays it back and the slow motion of it becomes like this horrendous, like reality ripping digital scream. Um, but I didn't realize till now that it's not just any random, like spookiness that camera is filming the end of the movie. Yeah. It's like mm. it's filming when they um, find the oh wow the the little boy Kagutaba later in the film. It's the exact same shot. So like, I, it feels like the moment when the the medium the the crazy lady mm-hmm. uh, hangs herself and kind of incarnates Kagutaba into the form of the little boy is actually ripping through time and space. Yeah, to this Which, again, earlier cosmic point. Eldritch Horror. Yeah, if you're yeah, a Lovecraft yeah. person, this is for you. And, and, yeah, yeah, and again, I think it's like. It's hard to like stress enough that I think that effect is is very innovative at the time, mm-hmm. and actually might be quite hard to pull off. Yeah, yeah. To mix at the time two digital films into what looks like a realistic yeah. Um, and um, Cam, oh, sorry, you, Cam, you watched this movie yeah. for the first time, and I know when I yes. like it's, so I'm coming to it from a different experience as I have now watched this movie many, many times because I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. um, but something I I found on my first watch where I had to pause it the moment that like genuinely upset me is where the actress is making the lunch and then all. All of a sudden she pauses and starts oh, yeah. her head goes back and you just hear the groaning oh, yeah. sound and then the pigeons hit the window and I was like okay I'm good I need a moment and I've yeah. also I've seen several people this is a weird thing that happens to me in my life I've seen several people have seizures out in public um, oh, and that's what the sound they make before they start having a seizure and it just like it's such a human but such an inhuman scary sound when it comes out that it's just like yeah <sighs> I mean it's yeah yeah it, I think one of the things that's great, and I can tie this into a movie that I know, uh, I know again from following Trevor and on his various <laughs> social medias and knowing Becky that you guys both like, which is Ghost Watch. Yes! Well. Oh, yes. Um, which one of the amazing elements of this movie is that you have an actress portraying herself as an actress who is also being incredibly creepy. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the most effective parts of Ghost Watch to me is that ending where the very serious TV host 
gets scared and is freaked out and yeah. is being haunted. And they do that all the time throughout. And I, I was very interested trying to dig up who, like what, what, who these people were and like that, the, like the two guys with her when she goes to the, the cemetery, are like a weird comedy duo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all about how they can't get laid. And like the first woman that interviews Mr. Horry is, is a former adult performer. That's kind of like a regular talk show guest. So she would be like, if Anna Nicole Smith was pulling up on this guy, it's very interesting to like try to understand the context but it must be so creepy and i know she was this role really made her famous so she might not have been the most famous actress ever here's what was interesting about her is she was actually known from a series of these super cute convenience store commercials so you were seeing Mm. this like it was like if like uh, a ronald mcdonald (laughs) kind of showed up you know or someone yeah someone like super that that little girl from the pepsi exactly yeah yeah. yeah, showed up and all of a sudden was like oh i'm being possessed like that's exactly it right like so there is that extra element of like surreality of I know you from this and mm. that's how you're you're kind of here and yeah, and no. the constant drawing into the real world and I and I assume that probably some of those shows are real shows and those hosts are the real hosts and, and that the content is close to what they would show on their show. It's something yeah. I think a lot of North American people are just kind of becoming aware of, especially because of shows like Terrace House, where like um, mm. them showing like like uh, like the psychic thing where they're testing all the kids, um, and then they have mm. like little boxes the in the corners of people commenting. Yeah. Yeah. That's really standard in Japan. That's what they do. Yeah. Like you're you're just and so it's like you're watching along with these people. It's like a podcast that plays at the same time. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but you you don't really have that here, and that's also something. He satiring, which I think is really interesting because they send, um, mm-hmm. well, the first time they send that woman to go talk to Mr. Hori, who's like, you know, the cute one, and she, uh, the, I think yeah. she's the former porn star, yeah? Yeah, yeah, they, uh, yeah. She, yes. yeah, she's super cute, but like you can tell she's there to exploit this man who, as far as we know, is mentally ill. Um, yeah, and, and we have the, the, there's like the like doink, like, yeah, like yeah. The graphics and stuff, and you're like, I, I, but I mean, I think that that's what one of the great things he does is that uncanny feeling, and what he does is, uh, which is a pretty classic suspense trope, but the way he does it within you is quite different. Where you, as an audience member, are putting this stuff together faster than anyone on screen. Yeah. So whenever they're joking, you're like, this is not a joke. <laughs> like here, you're like, uh, this is bad. Yeah. This is bad. This is the same guy who was there. There's like, you're like, I know this is the, this it, is the pigeon man. It's so Come unique on. to this film. Like I was saying, I don't think there's any other found footage or, or fake documentary that does this where you've had that extra level of mm-hmm. this missing documentarian has put it together for you. So it's all this stuff yeah. that everyone in it has no idea there's anything wrong because it's just, an isolated incident but because we you have this extra um knowledge you're above everyone else in the film including this missing man um and putting the pieces together it's like it's so good and so so unique and good and scary and what's wild is that then you get the credits roll and you're like oh yeah. that's not the end then it cuts again and then you see the footage of like oh holy shit that's what happened to his family like that's yeah. just yeah. like next level blah. yeah yeah it's so good um yeah I love it. <laughs> so I know, scary. I know. I'm there yeah. with you. Now, Trevor, you and I are also really big fans, and actually, possibly, I think, I, I think I'm with you. I like a cult, the one that comes after this, slightly more. Although you and I have different feelings about the endings, we're going to mm. talk about this one briefly because I will never get another chance sure. to talk about this on the no. podcast. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna we can we can only go so deep cut <laughs> on these you. Japanese horror movies. I'm hesitant to even uh, spoil it because you haven't seen it yet, Cameron. Right? Uh, no, yeah. I haven't. Uh, we should say both the both of these movies, all though um, a number of his other things are much harder to find. Both of these movies are fairly simple to get a hold of um, illegally, mm-hmm. and, and, yeah, et cetera. Legally, we'll say that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Occult is uh, a little bit more streamlined and also uh, not only does it have that supernatural cosmic horror that's kind of super heightened like Noroi does, but it ties it into um, in, in almost like in a, a slightly, it feels slightly dangerous way, ties it into real life tragedy, real life terrorism, um and the 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 sarin gas attacks in yeah, the um, ocean rikio attacks yeah mm. um where you know the very brief plot without spoiling too much is that there's an incident uh where at this famous bridge in japan um this guy shows up and starts stabbing people randomly and this you know someone is there with a camcorder and happens to record it and he ends up jumping off a cliff the guy the murderer the, the person stabbing everyone jumps off a cliff and just disappears. They, they can't find him in the ocean. They can't find where his body went at all. And then this documentary crew starts putting it together. Um, what was, you know, what might've driven this guy to do it, interviewing people who were there that day and got attacked. 
And then it starts getting weirder and weirder where they interview this one guy who was attacked, but he wasn't stabbed or killed. He just had this mark carved into his back. And then they find out that the guy who, you know, disappeared, who initiated this, this killing, this murder spree, he had a birthmark in the exact same shape as the thing that was stabbed into the other guy. And right before he jumped off the cliff, he said, it's your turn now to this new guy with the, with the mark in him. And then they start finding out that everyone there that day uh, was told to go to that bridge at that time because they had dreams that told them to be there at that point. And it just keeps the, the crank keeps turning. And then they start focusing on this guy who, you know, got this mark carved into his back um, and what he's all about. And he's like, Oh yeah, I see like miracles every single day. I see ghosts every day. And he, mm. he's a guy who is like kind of living on the street. He's got no money. And they basically say, if we can film you for a day, we'll give you a place to stay in the office. Um, and we'll pay you for this. And they start kind of building like a friendship with this guy, yeah. right? Mm. Like it's not meant to be exploitative. It's meant to like initially starts out as that. And then it's like, no, no, no. He's like our buddy. And like he, he lives yeah. here and we feed him and we hang out. And yeah. And then uh, it gets it gets worse, and then it it gets it gets into the implication of like the line between you're filming this guy and you're complicit in whatever this guy might be up to starts becoming very very thin. Uh, it gets yeah, rough. Without ruining it, it's okay. it's like it's re- it's bleak in a similar way that Naroy is bleak, and that ending is like, oh, we're now all doomed. <laughs> like, this child is going yeah. to bring the end. Um, but this one, uh, Trevor, I think you'd agree with me, is so much more grounded in reality and the terror mm-hmm. of, like, oh, is this guy mentally ill, or is there something bigger? Um, which yeah. you then find out, yes, there's something bigger. But it's still um, what what hu- with the human capacity for, for evil and danger and the exploitation of that. And it's a yeah. fascinating exploration of it, and the way it's pieced together. It's really it's so good. good. Um, Again, not yeah, for everybody. <laughs> yeah, the soundtrack alone is just this roiling, grinding, uh, industrial metal noise. It's the most off-putting, like un- unsettling <laughs> soundtrack I've ever heard. I think, like the the soundtrack to Norai was just the soundtrack of the thing, 100. Yeah. percent But the, the soundtrack is is really effective, and yeah, it it has an ending that I'm not going to reveal, but I really, really want to talk about it because it's so divisive. Every single review of a mm. cult. It's like, it's an incredible movie. It's so good until that ending. And it just ruined the whole thing for me. Yeah. And I'm like one of like two people I've ever met is like, you have to keep that ending exactly as it is. <laughs> it ties in very much to what I was saying just briefly about um, him using uh, effects that on their surface look very shoddy and cheap to mm. kind of get across these otherworldly concepts. The idea behind uh, the very last scene in Occult is so frightening to me on like a base, like uh level that its portrayal could kind of be in any way, shape or form. And I would still find it really scary, Mm. but the way that it is, is so surreal and off putting that it just heightens it for me. It's really good. It's a really good movie. You it's see really it. good. It's, no, no, yeah. it's available I mean, online. You should yeah. watch it. Also taking <laughs> yeah. uh, Koji Shirashi as well uh, is in that movie playing himself. Like he is the, yeah, he's yes. the film crew. So yeah, he starts yeah. again, that really, again, blurring the lines of reality yeah. and fantasy. What is this? So yeah, it's again, yeah. he's, I think he's a really underseen filmmaker and like, again, big line down the middle of his work of yeah. the super ultra violent and the more spooky atmospheric, both of them equally terrifying. This is what this person does and he's very very good at it mm-hmm. um mm. so i think that's uh that's the best place we can leave this so uh cameron yeah. maitland thank you once again for joining us yeah thanks and uh if he doesn't want to big up himself i will say check out all of trevor's creepy monsters there's there's many siren head's just the beginning oh, yeah. you guys oh, yeah. well, <laughs> thank uh, you t- talk to a child they can <laughs> they sure can and trevor yeah, henderson yeah. please thank you for being here and please tell us how we can see more of your scary monsters yeah yeah of course thank you so much for having me this was super fun um i'm mostly on i'm on twitter way too much at uh slimy swamp ghost <laughs> all one word <laughs> So and then but uh, great, great movie recommendations as i say yeah. you're you're a wonder wonderful source thank of you just talking about especially deep cut movies like this uh that i that i can dig up and, and you'll show a great image and i'll just be like what i gotta see that the only reason i have a big following online is to just get people to watch like weird crap and uh, <laughs> uh just be able to recommend stuff like that um but if you want to see more of my art with less 
like movie reviews and crap like that. Um, my Instagram is Trevor Henderson, all one word. And that's just art for the most part, I think. Yeah. Every now and then there's a, there's a, I'm sure there's a movie review <laughs> Instagram coming where you're just pointing at things yeah. going, this, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> if I get a Blu-ray, I'll post it there every once in a while, but mostly it's art. <laughs> it's always <laughs> such a pleasure to have someone who's so passionate about what they do and about movies on. So thank you so much for coming here and sharing your passion and of sharing course. my passion as well, because I really wanted to talk about these movies. So thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Thank you so much. All right. And you can join us next week where things are going to get a little soft, a little fuzzy, because we're going to be looking at the curse of the were-rabbit and the corpse bride. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Trevor Henderson as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.